Innovation Rockstars. Innovation Rockstars. Today with Kara Kunzeman, Senior Project Lead for Strategic Foresight for the Center for Space Policy and Strategy at the Aerospace Corporation. Welcome back to the Innovation Rockstar interviews. Today we have a really awesome guest with us and we are going to talk about strategic foresight in the space industry with Kara Kunzman from the Aerospace Corporation. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kara. Oh, thanks so much for having me. And I'd say really, let's start things off by listening from you. Uh, what is Aerospace Corporation? Who are you and what is your role there? Sure. Yeah. So the Aerospace Corporation um, is a federally funded research center. Uh, we're a non-for-profit organization that really provides deep technical expertise and objective analysis for a wide variety of customers across um, the civil, uh, national security, and commercial space. Um, our name is a bit misleading because we're actually a space company. <laughs> um, everybody thinks, you know, we're representing, you know, the aerospace industry and we're not. We actually, we primarily focus on space, um, but we we also um, support a, a wide variety of applications that um, maybe leverage our space expertise. So we work in a wide variety of areas, but space really is our bread and butter. Um, and um, I myself um, lead our strategic foresighting initiative at the company we're a fairly green uh, initiative, and I'll kind of talk more about that today. Um, and really, I mean, our, our team is really focused on transforming the future's mindset for the entire space enterprise and ecosystem. And, and can you maybe take me back a bit and share a little bit more of your story and how you've gotten into this role? Yeah, sure. So I guess maybe I'll, I'll start at the, you know, the, the beginning, <laughs> you know, once upon a time, um, yeah, so um, I, I actually have an engineering background, which is um, very interesting um, for, for those that are familiar with the, the tradi traditional track of, of going into uh, strategic foresight. So um, I have a, my undergraduate degree in multidisciplinary uh, engineering from Purdue University, and then I went on and got my master's in aero and astro engineering. Um, so I, I've had kind of an interesting journey. A majority of the jobs that I've had up until I joined aerospace about six years ago really have been focused on systems engineering. And, and for those that aren't aware, systems engineering really is the high level, big picture kind of architecting, planning strategy behind producing capability and fielding large scale systems. Um, yeah. So I think I always have been a futurist. I just didn't know what I, you know, that it was an actual academic mm -hmm. practice and that mm -hmm. there were these methodologies that go with it. Um, it was up until, I would say, four years ago, I was tasked to work on an internal science and technology um, project to try to figure out, you know, how do we maximize our impact to the enterprise, knowing, like everybody else, we have limited resources and limited right. time and, and, and people. So how do we do this smartly? And I was searching. I was searching for better ways, better methodologies. And, and uh, one of the, the women that I was working for that was leading the labs at the time uh, she's like, you know what? I came across this very interesting group when I was at Berkeley called the Institute for the Future. Um, and so this is a place in Silicon Valley. Um, and, and they've been there since the 60s, just like aerospace. You know, we've been around for 60 years. Um, there was this big spur of innovative kind of futures thinking right after, right. you know, World yeah. War II. And, and that's kind of where all these organizations kind of stood up. So I attended Institute for the Future. And I actually like very acutely remember 
um, one of the first questions they had, they had kind of pulled the audience on the first day was, do you guys have a horizon scanning practice? Are you guys regularly looking for signals as an organization? And I would say most of the room raised their hand. And I didn't because our, our company really, you know, we, we do pieces here and there, but there was no conscious effort to actually have, you know, a, a horizon scanning practice. And for me, that was really the spark. It was like, wow, there are better ways for us to kind of pull that enterprise um, knowledge and wisdom and bring that forward into making better decisions today. So um, that's kind of how I got started. And then that just went down a rabbit hole of um, me working on an internal research and development project to see how would we stand up foresight in the company. And then here I am three years later and we got traction and we're still working. I mean, we're still very green in the process, but um, uh, you know, it's, it's, I'm really excited because I never guessed from the past where I would be today. And I guarantee you there's going to be really exciting things in the future. I didn't even consider. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I I am pretty sure about that. And uh, here comes a somewhat provocative question uh, about strategic foresight for you. Uh, Let's see what your opinion is on that one. Um, Some say, you know, the current pandemic that we're in right now in the second half of the year 2020 uh, with uh, COVID-19. Some say it is a black swan event. Now, others would maybe argue that this pandemic is a situation that we actually could have well foreseen uh, using strategic foresight, for example, and, and been prepared for its impact. Uh, maybe, for example, the you know the global supply chain disruptions and so on, uh, and, and and there is, um, for example, the global risk radar of the World Economic Forum, uh, which actually precisely describes these global risks, possible consequences out of it, um, and, and but however, until today, we're still in reactive mode in this pandemic. Now, my question is, why are we still reactive? And are are we maybe not learning from strategic foresight? I mean, it's a really great question. And you would think, you know, now more than ever, this would be the ultimate wake up call. Um, So going back to your question, earlier question on, you know, black swan, if you're referring Mm. to Nassim Taleb's, you know, definition of black swan, the pandemic is absolutely not a black swan, right? And, and I, I totally agree with the World Economic Forum. There have been many, many signals of pandemics over centuries, right? This is not a new yeah. thing. Yeah. It's yeah. just highly, highly unlikely to have such a widespread um, thing, but it's also high impact, right? Um, I, I also believe that surprise is in the eye of the beholder. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're paying attention, there were signals everywhere. There have been signals for, for many decades that this is, this, you know, the, the breakdown of the ecological systems, the food chains, the markets. I mean, we knew that this was going to happen. Um, it just was a matter of time. And everybody's like, well, let's just hope it's not on my watch. Um, and then, of course, right, I think on the flip side, uh, you know, saying it's a black swan is almost a cop out for leadership. We never saw this coming. Right. We never saw this coming. Oh, boy. You know lucky you have me as a leader to help get us out of this mess and react as quickly as we can um, to get things back. I think the real hard part of this entire question is, is when you start doing pre-planning, that requires resources that takes away from something else. And, and the hard part is, is that surprise is everywhere. 
And so mm-hmm. how do you prioritize what surprise areas you really want to mitigate against versus others? And I think that's where we, you know, as governments, as people, we have a hard time rectifying how do you prioritize those things? Um, and it's not easy. Um, and so I think that's why our leadership has just said, you know what, the world is just so chaotic. We're just going to take the punches as we come. But I think, you know, to your, your final question about like, why are we still reactive? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's in our, it's, it's literally in our DNA. Our brains are wired to be reactive. So we have to evolve. And boy, is this a great moment for us to recognize the need for that evolution. And, and maybe that, you know, directly connects to, and, and I'm certainly it does, to the actual activities being performed uh, in strategic foresight. Now, now, since you're, you know, quite active in that field and also a practitioner, um, what are kind of the, the greatest myths out there that, that you encounter when you speak to people, to your team, to institutions on uh, strategic foresight? It's, this is like such a great question. So I think I always kind of walk in the door, especially when somebody, you know, an executive leader isn't familiar with what we do. You know, I, number one, I don't predict the future. I'm not a fortune teller. Um, this isn't just scenario planning, right? Um, this isn't just strategic planning. Um, it's not voodoo. Um, rather, it is a set of systematic methodologies that can help you better prepare for the future by taking actions today. Um, I, I do think that piece on, well, we kind of already do this because we do scenario planning. Um, it's not just about the things you're doing. It's the people you have involved. It's the, the processes in which you gain your insights. And then it's the leadership's ability to take those insights into action, right? The full foresight to insight to action right. curve that right. the foresight and community practices. I think for me, a lot of folks who maybe have been doing strategic planning over the last 20 years think that they're doing foresighting, but they're not. Um, I see this all the time that a lot of our strategic leaders think they're doing strategy and they're not. They're doing tactical, mm-hmm. uh, reactionary you know, planning and that's about it. So I think that's the big myth is we don't, most people don't really know what strategy is and most people don't know what foresighting is. And I guess uh, you're not predicting, as you said, you're not really predicting the future, right? You, you're showing possible path trajectories um, and also scenarios of the future uh, to, um, you know, take a little bit maybe of the surprise out of the equation. And, and I guess uh, y- just in a um, recent conversation, uh, you uh, were a guest speaker in a panel discussion. I guess it was from IEEE USA, if I do remember that correctly. And there is said, and and I quote, uh, we have systemic short-sightedness. And and this this specific statement, you know, caught my attention and made me think for a while. Uh, Can you maybe explain a bit what you mean by this having systemic short-sightedness? I mean, I think it goes back to your initial question. I mean, we literally are hardwired. Our brain is hardwired to have a major disconnect between our own future self, right? The only thing that it really resonates with is the present self. When you start thinking about other people in the present, your neurons go way down. But when you start thinking about yourself in the future, it's like it's a stranger. And, and I think that's the hard part, right? Is we have to break 
kind of this mindset of the here and now. And don't get me wrong, I think agility and adaptability is like an essential skill set mm-hmm. for the future. Um, but if you don't have sound kind of understanding about where you want to go and navigate across that uncertainty, you're just going to be fielding things right and left mm-hmm. with no yeah. general purpose, right? And I think that's that's the message that foresighting practitioners are really trying to push through with the pandemic is like, here, we have this wonderful opportunity to rechart what wasn't working for us before the pandemic, right? The pandemic is just opening that curtain and showing us, wow, here's your vulnerabilities. Here's where you're not doing well in democracy. Here's where, you know, you have systematic breakdown with the emergence of technology. Okay, let's go fix it. Let's not just like wait this out and hope that things get better on the other side. They're not going to get better. Like, spoiler alert, they're not going to get better. I don't <laughs> predict the future, <laughs> um, but there are things that we can do right. now, right, yeah, um, to yeah. make sure that we're better off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now you have two different parts of the equation. You know, on, on the one hand, you have uh, the adaptability, the agility as an organization to, to you know, enable you as a team as an organization as a whole to be uh, reactive, to be adaptive also on the short term. But on the other side of the equation, um, it also requires, uh, you know, visionary thinking, um, some more medium and, and long-term outlook into the future. Now, I, I think that this sounds like a contradiction in, in, in some way. So, so how at Aerospace, how are you doing that? Can you maybe just um, give us a, a glimpse into your uh, activities at Aerospace in your strategic foresight initiative? H- how are you working there? How do you do that? I, and you bring up such a great point about the dealing with what we call, you know, the push and the pull of the future, right? The push of all of the signals and the technology and the quantitative and qualitative data yeah. that backs it up, but then the pull, you know, where do you want it to be? Where could things go? What's the art of the possible? What are the wild cards? And as I'm sure most people and their organizations probably are doing fairly well on the push, right? Um, some more than others in terms of how how good of a job you're doing and analyzing what's happening in the marketplace and what startup companies you should be watching out for. Um, but in general, um, humans and businesses are very oriented on that you know set of data you know that that tells us where we think things are headed. Um, we have massive like consulting industries right based on the push. The pull is hard. It's hard for everybody. And I think it's been even harder in the VUCA environment that we live in. And and to be honest, leaders aren't incentivized to look at the pull. Mm -hmm. Um, Leaders are incentivized, right, to every decision that they make, they can point back to where the push is coming from. But transformation only happens, meaningful transformation, purpose-driven transformation only happens when you focus on the pull. Um, there are organizations and companies like Disney, for example, mm-hmm. who understand the importance of dreaming and imagination and creativity as part of that process. If you can't dream it, you can't make it happen. Um, right. And that so requires true. a very different mindset. Um, so something that we've really tried to do um, at our company is leverage. We have over 4,000 world-class engineers, scientists, technical subject matter experts um, across a wide variety of, of, of technical areas that are relevant to space. So why not use them in analyzing the push? The pull for us is a little bit more difficult, but 
I'll tell you what, we have some extraordinarily creative people that I found across our organization that has really helped start imagining and stretching that mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the futures map was, is a great example of, and, and we'll talk about that here a bit more, of how we were able to kind of break the mold of not just what's actually happening, what could happen. And so that requires literally time in a room, Mm. creatively thinking, doing some exercises, getting inspired, talking. I think this is a really important piece too, talking to external perspectives. We get caught up in groupthink and what the data is presenting us or what we think the obvious futures are. And that is a killer. It's a killer, I think, for potential opportunities to transform. Yeah, 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 it is. So <laughs> th- th- this is this is an interesting point that you made. So w- what I understood uh, from you is that uh, in, in any kind of foresight, uh, it is kind of hard to tell uh, when a specific phenomenon emerges. Um, um, and, and, and that is somewhat, you know, the nature of uncertainty. Um, but even if you have a good sense or a good gut sense, it is still hard to nail down when something actually could happen. But the, the actual problem space, so uh, the question, what could happen? And also its consequences. Uh, so the question, what happens if some phenomena occurs, uh, actually could be well foreseen. Uh, by strategic foresight. And in turn, if you don't do foresight, uh, you're actually more likely to get surprised by some unexpected change. And yeah, as we see with some uh, reactions today, then you'll find yourself in panic mode or in reactive mode. Yes, I guess the one caveat back to your myth Mm. question is that there's always going to be a black swan too. Mm. So the, I think mm. the, the myth yeah. that foresight is the singular answer to unlocking you know, the secrets of the future is also a fallacy. It it's helps yeah. open up our mindset. It helps us make better decisions, but there's also always going to be the element of surprise. That is just the fact right. of life. Right, right. I, I don't think you'll ever get to the 100%. That, that, that's totally true. Uh, in and in that light, I guess uh, just recently you and a, a few other colleagues published um, the uh, it's called the Pathfinder's Guide to the Space Enterprise. Brilliant name, in in my opinion. C- can you maybe tell me what, what exactly is this guide and and what made you create that? Yes. So if uh, for those of you that are Hitchhikers Guide to the Galaxy fans, <laughs> it's a little nod to that. Um, Yeah, so my team and I created um, what we call a futures map, um, which really is, um, you know, this was designed kind of pre-pandemic, thinking we would be at conferences and speaking with people and we'd be handing out this map that people could touch and feel and take with them and then, you know, open it up and put it on, you know, on their wall in their (laughs) office. And every day they would look at it and think of something different. Oh, um, I printed out actually. So it, it's oh, in my office oh, right now. So <laughs> I did. And there are instructions to print out yeah. the size that we created it for. Right. And um, spoiler alert, we do have um, poster size versions that when we do go to conferences, we will be handing those out. So that's some special mm-hmm. swag. Um, but really, you know, the whole point of the map was I had a really unique opportunity in that we had... Um, a place where we could explore the art of the possible for space agnostic to any stakeholder that exists today and just kind of look at 
where, where are the signals coming from? So we looked at the push and the pull, right? Where are the signals coming from um, that maybe indicates major paradigm shifts that we aren't really thinking about collectively? But also, where could this go? Where could this go across a wide variety of, of, of areas? And so that was, that was a really um, inspiring, refreshing activity because this was foresight for the sake of foresight. Yeah. I wasn't mm-hmm. trying I wasn't trying to, you know, hit on a keynote for a specific stakeholder. I wasn't, you know, um, you know, trying to carve out a specific area because that's what they were interested in. We were objectively looking across the landscape going, what's really going to matter? What are the key questions that we feel need to get worked out right now because there's some clear conflict across the enterprise. And so that was just like such an exciting um you know, creative avenue for us to approach. And, um, you know, we're really looking forward to doing another activity like this again, because mm-hmm. not many organizations have that case. Anytime you see some sort of report, there was almost like a hidden ulterior motive behind the initial study, True. right? And that's the value that I have is I work for a federally funded research center. I'm non-for-profit. My goal is to be objective. And so I really, wow. I really value that role. And how did that go? Uh, can you maybe uh, walk us through the the creation process a bit? So from the, you know, from the initial idea to the final product, the final map. Yeah. So um. So same thing, right? Like, uh, you never know when you start the journey exactly how the end destination is going to look like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I will say that um, we knew we wanted um, we knew we wanted to create a physical map because we wanted it to be tangible. We wanted okay. literally mm-hmm. somebody to hold the future mm-hmm. in their hand. So that's kind of what we, we knew going into it. Um, so we ended up having um, a range of over 70 subject matter experts and bright minds across the company, as well as external um, folks, kind of help us do some brainstorming, do some ideation. Um, we use some foresighting uh, techniques like, uh, you know, fringe signals and, and convergence mashups to look at, you know, what are some interesting threads that we can pull in this map? So we actually had over 400 different ideas coming out of a series of workshops. We culled those down into 70 ideas. We, we kind of categorized roughly what we thought those key thrust drive areas are for the future, not of the present, but for the future. And that's where we got our seven categories from. And we'll talk about that here in a bit. Um, the real, I think, what made this map so cohesive was I got our strategy team together in a room. We all flew out to LA um, in a room for a week. Mm-hmm. And in we week. just, for a, for week. a whole wow. week, we blocked uh-huh. out a week. Mm-hmm. Um, I made this a priority and we worked on different ways to communicate all of this information. So we had about six or seven different models and we decided on this one. Um, the decision process wasn't easy because if you look at this map, It's not the most intuitive, right? It's not a linear thing. There's no timelines on it. It's very abstract, right? Um, But it was the best way for us to communicate the kinds of information we wanted in a 2D medium. Um, There are other things that we're exploring right now in terms of digitally doing some sort of 3D um, representation of this data. But right now, that's what made sense. Um, And... The other tip I will say is if you want to create some sort of visual product, have your media team mm-hmm. be part of the process from day right. one. 
Yeah. It was right. essential for us. And, you know, we're very fortunate in that, you know, our home office, which is in El Segundo, is right next to Hollywood. We actually have world-class media folks um, that work at the company and that we can leverage. And so I immediately knew that that was a resource that I wanted to take advantage of. Um, and, and that, I think, is what made it so visually appealing as well as technically, you know, competent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm. And let, let's maybe dive in to the map J just a little bit, not not to spoil a little too much. Um, but but uh, you've said there was seven categories or, or seven core themes uh, developed from uh, hundreds of ideas with uh, dozens of experts. C can you maybe go into one or two examples of those core themes sure. and, and what they actually mean for yeah the, the future of space or the future of the space enterprise? So I mean, I think we had some obvious ones like you know access to space or in, in, you know intelligence infrastructure. Um, but maybe one that people aren't thinking as much about is resources. And when I mean resources, I mean the physical and virtual jewels that are going to be coming out of exploring, developing, and then bringing back those benefits to earth and to mankind. And so mm -hmm. resources is much broader and much bigger of a concept than just I'm mining ore. Um, yeah. There's a whole okay. set of things. And, and, and to be honest, that, that is true today. I bet most people don't know if they're eating food, if they're using a cell phone, that they are connected literally second by second to space. Mm -hmm. Most people don't know that. Wow. Wow. Um, so imagine, right, as we're pushing out and bringing and broadening this space ecosystem, what all of those jewels are going to be bringing back for humanity. Um, wow. Another mm -hmm. really key thread is the players. There's just going to be such a, you know, such an incredible vast amount of new players coming into space. We've been seeing just the early stages of it, um, but there's going to be explorers and scientists and entrepreneurs and mm -hmm. innovators and, um, you know, people who love to make selfies and, you know, their blog videos in space, <laughs> service providers, infrastructure, um, you know, Artists. We have, um, you know, one of the Japanese uh, billionaires actually created this whole concept of going, you know, around the moon and bringing artists and dancers and musicians with him because he felt like we need to be bringing that emotional piece of exploring space back to humanity. So there's just going to be this wealth, I think, of of players and interest in space that we mm -hmm. haven't really thought about. And we're already seeing inclinations of it now, but we haven't pulled it together. We haven't really made sense of it. So having, having that said, would you maybe agree with the statement that an artificial intelligence, maybe even a generalized AI or something, is also a player in the entire game in, in space or, or not? What do you think? Well, absolutely. I, I think, you know, <laughs> the argument for artificial intelligence in X is absolutely going to be the case in the future, right? Mm -hmm. And and AI can kind of come to fruition in, in many places. I think the most obvious interpretation of this kind of in the nearer term is just the vital role that it's going to be playing in formation flying and real-time data sensing and processing mm -hmm. and integrated networking. We're already kind of seeing that. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we have a we have like a, a mashup kind of nodding to the fact that AI could be keeping humans emotionally tuned while they're traveling, traveling and living through space. We know that space can be very emotionally um, and psychologically challenging on humans. So what's the role of AI there? 
Um, and then perhaps, right, like AI could be um, even in, you know, maybe undiscernible between what is human and what is not, right? So right. Um, right. we, again, we know space travel is extraordinarily difficult on humans. Um, and how can maybe infusion with AI help in making that travel and making that, you know, sustainability um, go smoother? So perhaps, you know, perhaps there's some sort of hybrid human model um, themselves. We also call out something um, called cognitive transfer um, mm -hmm. in our, our intelligence uh, piece of the, the map, which is really looking at, you know, how can the collective, you know, set of connected brains, whether that's artificial or real, transfer information and data seamlessly. And you could almost imagine that being coupled with quantum uh, communication in the future. And that could be almost instantaneous across the universe as we're traveling. I mean, um, it sounds crazy, but you know, this is science kind of being developed in real time. Right. Um, and I think there's, there's, you know, we also have another thread in there about, you know, everything is a sensor and programmable matter. Mm -hmm. So think about the value if you can use every little cell and every plant and every animal to help you make better predictions about the climate um, or understand the health of the ecosystem and provide real feedback. Um, just imagine what that could be. And, you know, space has to be part of that because you can't observe without really having that, right. that big True. picture view. So for, for anyone who's uh, interested in exploring your map um, a little bit further, uh, how can they find that? Is it publicly available or how, how can they get that? Oh, yeah, it's right on our website. Um, if you want, I can send you the link and then you can tag it to the, the podcast. But yeah, it's just at Aerospace's website. Um, you can just Google Aerospace Center for Space Policy and Strategy. Um, obviously, the, the guide itself is called Pathfinder's Guide to the Space Enterprise. You can Google that as well. Mm -hmm. so It's called Pathfinder's Guide to the Space Enterprise. Space highly Enterprise. recommended. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, highly recommended, I'd say. So I think I lost myself for, I don't, I don't know, one or two hours uh, because, you know, oh it, in, in, it included <laughs> some terms I've never heard before. And there was one specific element in that. Uh, it, it said um, a, a general AI is going to be the CEO of yeah. about 40% of the S&P 500 or, or so. So, uh, yeah, that, that's a bold statement, I guess. <laughs> and for everyone who's interested in that, go and check out the, the map. It's, it's, it's really a great one. Uh, Thank you. Um, yeah. Now, is, is there any other big or small disruptors that you think that, that need to be on your radar um, when you look at the, when, when you look at space um, that you need to be aware of, uh, for example, to shape the preparedness of aerospace or of humanity? Yeah, I well, for me, um, just understanding how quickly we're making progress in genetic modification, we're actually at a point where we're able to engineer our own DNA. Mm -hmm. um, there are obvious um, potential benefits uh, for, for being able to apply this capability to space travel um, for humans and sustainability for humans, especially since, you know, the radiation environments are just they're really harsh um, and, and they're one of the biggest inhibitors. And that's one of the reasons why we send robots first uh, to, to mm, places. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that is on my radar. Absolutely. Um, I think um, looking for, um, you know, on the business side, we're still not seeing large establishments in the commercial sector um, getting involved in the space. I think once we start seeing the media companies come in full droves, 
utility companies, and, and we know that they're curious. Um, it's mm-hmm. just a question of when are they going to pull the trigger? Is it five years? Is it 10 years? Is it 50 years? Um, and yeah. so what are the things that we can do, especially as governments, to set up the right infrastructure to help accelerate that capability? Because if you don't have the infrastructure, you know, just like we have roads, just like we have, you know, the airway um, and air traffic control, if you don't have those kinds of things in place, it's not going to happen organically in the commercial sector. It's too costly, right? right? It's the insurance companies aren't going to buy off on it. Um, So we need to be really smart here. And I think we're in a really, we have a lot of momentum going in the right direction, um, but that can fizzle out if we're not, you know, if we're not careful. Um, Also, I will say, um, interestingly enough, um, on our workforce side of the map, uh, we kind of called out um, something called Space Rabbit. So if you're familiar with the company called Task Rabbit, right, which outsources different tasks, you can hire, you know, freelancers to come do your different tasks for you. We were thinking about like, well, what kind of people are going to be working in space and how is that going to kind of evolve in the future, right? Like how does, and, and this is a bigger question of like, what is the future of work and how are we going to get different types of talent? Um, so we had thought of this concept of, you know, Space Rabbit. Well, it turns out there's a company called Space Lee, uh, L-Y, that just got started in January. That's ex- doing exactly that. So for me, that was a success story because I, it was like, oh, wow, we're calling out all these different things in the ecosystem and they're happening in real time. Um, so I'm kind of excited to see what else, you know, over time pans out in our map and what doesn't, obviously. Um, and again, it's not a predictive tool. That's not, you know, I don't hang my hat right. going, oh, yeah. we predicted this, but it's right. to show that we're thinking about this this wide range of possibilities mm-hmm. are we you know as a as a as a nation or as a as humanity as a whole solving all these issues and, and problems because obviously uh, we I, I think so i'm not a space expert but i think all these issues all these problems all, all these technological challenges need to be solved on earth right because we cannot test things on mars we cannot test things on the moon so so everything that we're building um all capabilities skills know-how that we need to ultimately do something thing in space somehow need to be created on earth right because that's the only place uh, well, that we have changing, though because right? uh-huh. we have on orbit manufacturing um a lot of the small startup companies are literally building very quickly um very cheaply they're putting it in space and they're tex- testing everything and working out the kinks and then re-wickering um you know the mission of their their payloads just by doing a software upload so i think That piece of space is is changing, and I think it's going to change radically in the next 10 years or so because of on-orbit manufacturing and servicing. Um, You don't have to do everything on the ground first and then push it up into space. Mm -hmm. This this is kind of blowing my mind. (laughs) Okay, but that's that's, uh, never heard that before, but that sounds crazy at least it's a real thing it's not crazy (laughs) things are happening right now i can tell you crazier things that you won't believe me that'll pan out (laughs) Uh, and um um it it sounds like there is lots of information lots of you know startups technologies trends signals wild cards you name it you get it associated with that to ultimately shape uh, a picture of the future. Now, I guess one of your next big projects is indeed to build an, an end-to-end digital foresight platform uh, together with Atonix. Um, so why a digital platform for all of that? What are its goals? Yeah. Oh, man, this is going to be an adventure. I'm already, um, I'm really excited about this. <laughs> so 
We, you know, my team is small um, and we have to juggle such an immense amount of information and insight and then try to triage that for decision makers and then tailor all of that analysis for a wide variety of decision makers across the enterprise. And doing it manually is it's literally impossible, right? So we're looking for tools to help us accelerate our ability to focus on what matters most for foresight practitioners, which is that insight piece, right? So more data is not always better. Right. It's really about what the types of data, the diversity of the data that you need to help inform your insight activities that can help really bring to the table to decision makers what's going to matter for them. And so I truly believe that having this end-to-end digital foresight platform is going to help us expedite in getting to and focusing more on insight. That's what I'm really passionate about. That's where I think the community needs the most work. Um, and, and then, of course, if we're creating this living, breathing ecosystem of mm-hmm. signals and changes and possibilities, you can cross-reference that across the enterprise. So now we have all these stovepipes, right? But now you're at a point where you can communicate at the same level and start working towards building a common purpose. And I think. I'm really looking forward to having some of these enlightening conversations that show, hey, you know what? If I work with this other entity over here, mm-hmm. we're going to be able to be much greater than the sum of our parts. So it's it's kind of bringing information all together, but it's also bringing people together, right? Because ultimately what you create with that is uh, some single point of truth, maybe, yeah, of, of, of information, of, of, of um, contents around foresight. So what are some of the activities that you um, want to transfer to the digital space? I mean, most probably you will be doing workshops still in physical rooms, you will meet with people. Um, but, but what's some of the activities being done on the platform? Is it information sharing only? Or is it also um, building a community, get discussions going, get exchange going. Can you maybe maybe um, give some insight on that? I think the platform really is going to help organize the activities that we were already doing, which, as you mentioned, are highly people-centric. The people are the most important part of this, right? Um, and then I think second comes the methodologies and the tools. The platform is a place for us to organize and share this information and help make it visual, I think help make it real, right? When you have everything across the enterprise represented in a single platform, it helps make people start starting to understand how those pieces start really tying together. Um, and that's where the real aha moments come from. So we're still going to be having, you know, a dedicated set of folks who are constantly looking for signals, meeting regularly, talking about what is the implication of those signals, building new trend cards, right? That's, that's an integral part of the process. Mm-hmm. We're going to have workshops doing the poll of the future, right? Thinking about What is the art of the possible? Where could this go? What are the scenarios? What are the critical scenarios that we need to be considering for various stakeholders, putting those in the system? Um, And then, of course, having workshops with our executive leadership to talk about, this is what we are seeing. What do you see? Because if you, you really need to bring them into the process. And I think, again, because the platform provides that baseline, it provides that sense of like, oh, there's real tangible evidence behind the discussions we're having. It's going to be easier for the easier for them to start making decisions when they can see the buildup of evidence and they can see the smart people that is behind them saying, you really need to look at this issue and here's why. And here's your trade space of options. Um, so we expect to be doing 
all of these activities, Mm -hmm. um, which as I'm sure many of our listeners know, like it's a very daunting task to do foresight. Well, it's an immense amount of work, Um, but the rewards on the back end of it are irreplaceable, right? Shaping your own future to a preferred future that you want to be. There's no price on that. Yeah, that I, I guess there can't be abs- any price on that. Absolutely agree uh, with that statement. This is interesting to hear. Now, um, maybe a last one on this um, uh, topic. What is kind of the long-term vision or, or the long-term goals of that? Do you maybe even plan to open up the platform someday to a broader external audience or will there be some you know, access from other institutions, other governmental institutions or private companies to that? Or, or do you plan to keep it in-house um, and, and grow it over time? Yeah, well, I, um, I personally am not a big fan of crowdsourcing. Mm-hmm. And I sit in a very unique organization in that we have incredibly um, insightful subject matter experts that know space deeper than pretty much anybody else. And we have a wide variety of them that really represents the space industry. Um, that being said, we are also very prone to groupthink, right? And so it's equally mm-hmm. important for us to grab external you know, perspectives and expertise to help round out our thinking. Um, And so I certainly, and we've already been doing this, but we probably are going to have more formal programs and bringing in those external, you know, contributors and, 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 and obviously we're going to vet them very well. And they're going to be part of our, our, our broader team um, to help us bring in that insight. Um, I, I also view it's, it's going to be absolutely necessary for us to reach out to every single stakeholder that wants to make a change for the better um, and work with them almost on a one-on-one basis. Um, and then hopefully over time, right, as my role as an FFRDC is to start bringing those stakeholders together. I think that that's our ultimate goal because we want to remove the stovepipe approaches that we've been taking. So, Kara, we're already quite far with our interview, I guess. Uh, Let's maybe take, again, one step back and and come back to the somewhat bigger picture. Um, Again, thinking of uh, space, because also most of our listeners really don't have any experience with that. So I think uh, they'd be highly interested in your opinion on that. Um, What do you think... um, how do you think the commercialization of space, which is a topic at least discussed in the general public, I guess, uh, how will it change in the next five to 10 years? Um, what's kind of the challenges and, and what impact will it actually have on, on us being some humans? So, I mean, this is like, you know, the million dollar question, right? right or the, right. I guess, the trillion dollar question, uh, which many are arguing is going to be the future, uh, you know, commercial <laughs> marketplace. But yeah. there are some real challenges. I mean, I, access to space is going to be an enduring challenge until we change that paradigm. Um, and and the good news is, is that during the pandemics, the space advancements haven't slowed down too much. Um the investments are still there. The technical progress is still being done. So that, to me, is a very good sign. Um, what I think I'm a little worried about is maybe some of the longer term, um, you know, external um, implications from the pandemic that might have on funding. And that might end up trickling into the venture capitalists that have been propping up. And, of course, the, de- the you know, the defense and government 
uh, budgets that have been also helping move some of this progress along in the commercial sector. Right. Um, uh, so that's, you know, from a financial standpoint, I think that that's what um, I have on my radar. But but for now, things are looking pretty good. I mean, there's there's a lot of exciting things happening. Um, in the near term, we're seeing this big push for per- proliferated LEO, so low Earth mm-hmm. orbit constellations that are going to set up, you know, these massive distributed networks. And I think it's important for us to understand how quickly that is going to be set up here over the next year or two. Mm-hmm. And what is that actually going to be providing to humanity? Well, it means you're going to have seamless communication pretty much around the globe. Um, that obviously is going to vary uh, by location, but it's going to be much better than it ever was. And there's going to be people who have access mm-hmm. uh, to the internet that never had access. On top of it, these systems are starting to be integrated with each other, uh, with other platforms, with other sensors, and they're starting to talk to each other and they're starting to get really smart about real-time tasking. Well, what does that mean? What are the opportunities there? And I, I keep going back, you know, I think the weather example is a really good one because let's face it, we, we are in a, um, you know, a place of real concern with, with climate sure. change, yeah. um, with the environment, and we're going to need much smarter ways to understand how our climate is changing. And then, of course, hopefully understanding how we can overcome and help mitigate and heal our planet. Um, so I look at those as, as really great opportunities. Um, the other piece of this is, let's just think out a couple steps. Let's say Elon, let's say Jeff Bezos, let's say some of the other tech companies which have programs going on that, you know, we may or may not know fully what, what they're doing um, in Silicon Valley. Let's say they're successful. Mm-hmm. The whole premise behind a lot of this is to make that next step, is to go to cislunar, is to go to the moon, is to go to Mars, right? If they're successful, that is, I think that is a really interesting what if question for us to ask. And let me, let me tell you, the track record has been pretty well with some of these folks, right? Yeah, um, yeah, I look true. at Elon and I'm, I'm just, I'm constantly just like, wow. Like everything that you've set your heart onto, you've never stopped. You've never said no, you know, with SpaceX, right? That company almost folded several times, but you know what? He did it <laughs> and he did it with Tesla. Um, and, and I, you know, he's going to do it with Starlink and I certainly hope yeah. uh, he's successful in getting to Mars because I think that could have some really exciting implications for the commercial industry and for humanity into space. So now that we're, you know, with all of that being said, now that we're, you know, going into space, expanding humanity into space step by step, what do you think? What should we be doing differently in space uh, than on Earth today? Oh, well, number one, we should be practicing foresight. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I think, honestly, we should be treating resources and each other with the respect and the sanctity that they deserve, right? We are all made of stardust. And whether that's on Earth or in space, yeah. we should be leveraging that moving out. I mean, let's get realistic. We're going to take the same problems that we have here on Earth and bring them with us to space. Um, but boy, wouldn't it be great if we could do it differently. Um, so I would say we need to be treating space, even though it's a really big place, yeah. It also is, you know, the, the things that are happening with debris um, in low Earth orbit, um, we have to clean that up. We need to be treating that as a natural, you know, a natural resource. Um, and on the flip side, I think space can provide a really unique lens. Ask any astronaut who has viewed Earth from space, and they will tell you they have never viewed their home the same. 
And I think mm-hmm. we can leverage those perspectives as we travel farther and farther out in space and bring that home to understand how important and valuable our home is to us as humans. So uh, maybe maybe just one last question, Kara, before we kind of finish this um, interview. And this is maybe a very personal question um, I'd like to ask you. Um, so with all that you do these days at the Aerospace Corporation, uh, what, what does it mean for you, for future generations, but, but also for your children? Yeah, well, I will tell you, um, it has been um, kind of, you know, a wild ride in my personal life the last year and a half. We've had, you know, my, my father recently passed away and he was my biggest champion, a huge advocate for space. I became a mother for the first time. And then, of course, we have the pandemic. And so I think the silver lining in all of these um, incredible circle of life events is that um, you really, we, we have limited time um, on earth. Um, and what you do with your time, uh, is precious. And so everything that I do, um, in work, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm really truly making a difference and making a difference for the future generations of my company, for my children, for their children. Um, and I think it's really helped me. I've always been passionate about this, but becoming a mom has made me double down on the importance of foresight as a, as a humanity, as we move from the industrial age to the intelligence age, we have to have and bring in the human aspect to the things that are happening around us. Otherwise, technology is going to swallow us whole. I don't want my child living in that world. I want her living in a world that is abundant. And I think we can get there. And I think people are starting to wake up. And I think that's the silver lining, I think, of the pandemic um, as well is there are capabilities and tools to help us build a better world. And, and quite frankly, that's foresighting. And of course, having tools like a digital platform, foresighting platform can help us expedite and get there. <laughs> so I think this is a just perfect ending <laughs> for this interview, Kara. Thank you really big time for this super exciting conversation. Um, I, I just say, take care. Once again, thanks much for your time. Um, and anybody, really, if you're interested in looking at the uh, map that Kara and team uh, has created, just go Google for it, look at that. And uh, Kara, again, thanks much. Have a good one and uh, take care. Thanks for having me. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care.